0: First pitch, swing, high fly ball, left field. Dickerson going back to the warning track. That ball is gone—a majestic home run for Acuna. And just like that, the Braves are back in the game. His unbelievable month continues. I said it before. I, you can't keep relying on Ronald, but Dadgum, if he doesn't do it. <laughs>
1: Hey now! Hey now! Welcome Hello. to Hello. the Sports Caster. Casters Podcast. My name is Steve Bennett, and my host today, my helper is. Paula! Speak right in that microphone, sweetie. Hello. Paula Bennett? Mm-hmm. All right, Paula Bennett's with me today. Mm-hmm. And it is Thursday, April 22nd at 8 o'clock p.m., and I have a story to tell you. So, story! I recorded the interviews for this podcast, Keith Law from The Athletic and also the author of a book that we covered last year in the book club and now is out on paperback, and Devin Gordon of the Mets. Those interviews were done last Friday. My plan was to put it up either Friday or Monday over the weekend, somewhere in that range. And it didn't get done over the weekend, and then I had my second Pfizer shot on Monday at 9.15 a.m., And I felt a little sketchy during the day, but nothing sick, nothing bad. Got through the night, slept fine, whatever. Woke up on Tuesday ready to go. And everything seemed, you know, fine. And I went and took a nap with Paula at 1 o'clock on Tuesday. And I woke up at around noon today. I slept for about two and a half days straight, and this podcast didn't get done. I would wake up, and I'd be up for like a half an hour, maybe look at my phone, send out a tweet, maybe have something to eat, and I'd be right back to sleep. So I never got really sick, but man, it sucked the life out of me for two days, and I slept some deep sleeps, and I feel like I'm still catching up, and Paula and I went to lunch today to Five Guys, and then we went to Barnes & Noble, we are going to do Wegmans, and I was tapped out by the time we got to Wegmans. I couldn't do it. So anyway, we're back today. It's season season 11, episode number seven, Keith Law, and the other guest is Devin Gordon, uh, who has a book club book of the month called So Many Ways to Lose about the lovable losers that are the New York Mets. So this episode... It's dedicated to all the good Mets fans out there. Friends like Matt Cebalski, uh, Larry from the rink, Mr. Matt. I used to call him back in the day. Even though he looked like a Backstreet Boy, I used to call him Mr. Matt. Friends on Twitter like James Flippin. And the lawyer from New York City. Uh, that's a good conservative guy that I always that always follows me and listens. Shout out to you as well. Everyone. Everyone out there who listens to the show, I appreciate you. Uh, And this one is for the Mets fans. So we're going to start something new today, and it's the Sports Media Minute. We've been talking a lot more about sports media and having a lot of sports media guests on. And I thought it would be fun in the days we don't have a specific sports media guest uh, to do something called the Sports Media Minute. I got five stories that are... Bruin in the sports media world. I'm going to work on a drop for this. uh, And then we'll uh, read the five stories. So first. First thing. The World Series of Poker. don't know if you've seen this. Uh, The World Series of Poker is moving from ESPN to CBS. So this is from yogonet.com. Beginning in 2021, CBS Sports Network will be the exclusive domestic television home of the World Series of Poker. Featuring 15 hours of main event coverage and 36 hours of 18 additional gold bracelet events, easily making it a new high for the historic poker festival. Uh, This is a past partnership that is being rekindled, as CBS Sports was the first broadcast of poker in the U.S. and the World Series of Poker at main event in the mid-70s. Now, to me, the World Series of Poker and ESPN are hand-in-hand, so it's going to be interesting uh, for it to move out I know I have CBS Sports I'm not sure I know exactly what channel it is uh I find it during um during you know during college hockey season sometimes also there will be in the co- coming months details will be released about coverage across other Viacom CBS platforms including Paramount Plus which is another one of those streaming platforms that I just got uh because I signed up for the you know the free, like basically free for the year. I think we spent twenty five dollars for the year uh, to get it. They're running a promotion um, when they launch, so hopefully there'll be some good coverage of the event. I love the World Series of Poker. You know, I caught on and when it in the heyday, the Money Maker year. I like to play. You know, I have fun with it. Um, I wish I played more. You know, I wish I had a, like a like a game, a home game. Uh, But the World Series of Poker, moving from ESPN, where it's been so synonymous, to CBS Sports as the battle for content uh, heightens. All right, Aaron Rodgers did a week on Jeopardy, which was kind of highlighted by his uh, really funny moment where one of the guests or one of the players asked whose idea it was to kick the field goal in the NFC Championship game. Uh, Well, I guess he did really good ratings, which is good for his, I guess, prospects of becoming the permanent host. Uh, But the other day, Jeopardy! announced the other group, the last group, I guess, of guest hosts to close out Season 37. And there's some sports names on there. Uh, George Stephanopoulos, not a sports name. Uh, LeVar Burton, who seemingly everyone wants to uh, get a shot at this from Reading Rainbow. David Faber. Robin Roberts uh, of Sports Center fame and, of course, Good Morning America. And then the big name here, friend of the sportscaster Joe Buck, uh, will get his chance to host Jeopardy. It'll be interesting to see who gets this long term. I still kind of think it's going to be Ken Jennings, uh, but we shall see. Uh, I think the plan is to do, you know, obviously to finish this season with the guest hosts and have a new one next year. We'll see how Joe Buck does on that. Speaking of Aaron Rodgers. Him and his actor pal, this is from our friend Andrew Marchand, the New York Post. Him and his acting friend has an IMDB of sports. Uh, Ryan Rotman is that acting friend, and they've raised $2.5 million to create a sports platform that will provide information on athletes, including profiles, salaries, endorsements, statistics, charitable foundations, and their agent contacts. It's going to be called Online Sports Database, and it launches... Tuesday, which means it's launched, I think. It will initially just be the NBA, the Major League Baseball and NFL, so no NHL yet. No soccer, no tennis, nothing like that. Uh, Rotman told the Post, I'd say we're a verified Wikipedia meets IMDB. Uh, They do plan to have a subscription model. Most of the content content would be free, but the subscription selections will cost $10 a month. And they'd give anyone access to contact information for athlete's agent. It's essentially, it's a B2B play using the short for business to business. At some point, Robin added, they may license their data. So that will be interesting there. I don't know. The first thing I was thinking is would this help me with guests? And I'm not sure if it would. Like if I subscribe to $10 would I have easier access in terms of who to email but I don't do a lot of athletes so I don't know but if it has retired athletes who are now in sports media that might work for me we'll see about that one more for Andrew Marchand and the ratings book is back and it's good news for WFAN and bad news for that idiot Michael K and Peter Rosenberg WFAN rides Carton and Roberts back to the top In the battle. Uh, So, here's what basically happened. Francesca won for years and years and years. Uh, The Michael K. Show chased him down, beat him in the last book. Of course, we cover this story all the time. And there's this, you know, what do you count? Streaming, not streaming. Either way, the most important demographic that they use for advertising, males 25 to fifty-four. Carton and Roberts, third overall in the market with a 5.3 share, while Kay was fourth with a 4.8 share in the first full book between the two shows. So Carton was away for three years. He comes back, wins the first book. It's got to be huge. Now, they did make a change, which we'll see in the next book, how this helps the K show. Instead of starting at three when Carton and Roberts starts at two and losing behind Max Kellerman, who is getting no ratings, I think he was in 18th place in New York. Both shows start at 2 now. So we'll see if them being on an equal footing matters. Also, Carton and Roberts will soon be on SNY for two hours a day. Um, So that's pretty interesting. Uh, Marshawn says, Carton is graded on engagement, not accuracy. He falsely reported that ESPN Plus already had a deal for Sunday ticket and can be loose with facts. Uh, he's talented, though, and I'd much rather listen to him than I would listen to Michael Kay, that idiot. And speaking of him, uh, Neil Best will be on the next episode of the Sportscasters to talk about what the hell happened with Michael K and the ratings book and all. We'll follow up on this New York stuff with Neil Best on the next show. All right, last thing, uh, Bernard Goldberg, kind of the older gray-haired gentleman on real sports, uh, is no longer on real sports and apparently... His conservative politics led to the exit. Uh, There's a long article about this on Awful Announcing, and you can go through it if you want. But it basically goes on to talk about how uh, Bernie, who was on Real Sports for, you know, 20 years or something like that, and uh, he's won 14 Emmy Awards, 20 years on the show, 14 Emmys for his work uh they axed the story that he had worked on about transgender athletes in female sports started the friction then there was some he felt annoyed in the round table which i mean is something i see it and i immediately turn it off uh but look at they he's a conservative that doesn't work in mainstream uh they didn't like his work he didn't like them you know, I think he said he just didn't have any love for the work anymore. Uh, and he's out. So you can read the longer article about it on Awful Announcing. I'm glad as a conservative myself uh, that Bernie stuck to his principles and got the hell out of that show, which has turned so woke. which just too bad because it was such a great show, telling really great stories. And now it's just woke, 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 woke. I can't stand it. I can't stand usually more than a second of it. So good on Bernie. Glad he's gone if you want to read more about that. It's on Awful Announcing. All right, that's the Sports Media Minute for today. Like I said, we got to work on a drop for that. Maybe Paul can help me with that. On the show, we're going to take a break. We'll come back with Keith Law. We'll see what's up with Keith. Uh, his book's out on paperback. It's a really good interview. We talked games. We talked baseball. We talked prospects, the draft. Fun interview. We'll take a break. We'll do the book club update. Devin Gordon then will be on after that to talk about his book club, Book of the Month on the New York Mets, So Many Ways to Lose, and then I'll be back for uh, plugs and one last thing and all that. All right. We'll take a break, and we'll be right back. Our first guest today is a graduate of Harvard Mm. i don't know how that got past me he is a uh, full-time writer for the athletic uh, where he's been for the last year after 14 years at espn he's making his second appearance on the podcast today a warm sportscasters welcome to keith law hey keith how you doing today i'm good thanks how about you pretty good pretty good welcome back it is uh yeah thanks for having me feels good to have baseball back you know like last year the season was different. It was delayed. You know, it came at a different time. It just feels good. It feels normal to me in some way that you know, games are played are being played in the cold. You know, and games are getting rained. You know, it just has a more normal feel to it that I appreciate. I don't know if you've
2: noticed that at all. Um, for me, it's been just being able to get out to some games. I've been to sure. Yeah, uh, I've been down to UVA. I've been down to the University of Maryland. I have actually been in a ballpark and been able to go out and evaluate players again. And, and I missed that. I hadn't done that, had not been to a game myself. I know there were major league games in 2020, but that's not really my beat. And it had been close to 13 months for me in between games. And that uh, it turns out something I, I missed terribly. I know part of your beat is um,
1: certainly the amateur draft. And uh, I saw the other day on The Athletic, that you had published your top 50 prospects, uh, which I always love to read because baseball is unlike, for me, football and hockey, where I'm very up to... I know who the first 15, 20 picks are going to be, you know, roughly in some order. Uh, and I like to read I like to read your article because I'm always fascinated by 1-1. You know, who's going to be 1-1? And the way baseball is so interesting with will they draft a high schooler, you know, will it be a college player? Things like that. What was interesting to you about the top fifty this year? Was there anything unique about it? Anything specific that maybe is a result of the way the life has been in the world the last year and a half?
2: Um, that's a. I don't know that there's anything related to the pandemic and the lockdown yet. Yeah. Now we may. There are certainly some signs that things are different this year. We're seeing a number of pitchers who were expected to be first rounders or otherwise high picks. And I'm thinking more college pitchers and you know, college players just basically didn't play last year after the first four weeks they shut down. There was not really any summer baseball for them. Most guys just ended up having to take the rest of the year off. Right. That's what I was and thinking. And we are, we are seeing some college pitchers show maybe a little more fatigue, not, not necessarily injuries, no more than usual, but some guys had hit some rough spots. Um, at least velocity-wise. I don't know if that's really related. I don't know if that's a trend. I do know that I feel like the draft class as a whole is just not that great. We thought there was going to be some depth in college pitchers, particularly college right-handers. So far, that hasn't really turned out to be true. College position player class was always going to be not great. Now it turns out it's really not great. And so unless we see some college pitchers kind of bounce back in the second half of the college season or maybe some – more cold-weather high school kids emerge. This is already a pretty good draft for cold-weather high school kids, just even around me, Delaware, Pennsylvania, New Jersey. There's a ton of kids, uh, far more than usual. But maybe some more guys will pop up and kind of fill in the rest of the draft. But so far, it just feels like overall the, the year is it down. It's disappointing because going into the season, back in February, I thought, hey, this draft class actually looks surprisingly good.
1: Yeah, there's a catcher here um in my neck of the woods in Buffalo number 33 I think he was on your list Joe Mack and his season hasn't really even started yet you know what I mean that New York State has been so behind other states for sure plus the weather is always a factor here right uh with baseball you know I don't know how many games they could have even got in so far you know, we've had days where it's 70 we've had days when it's 30 that's how it is in you know March and April right. here but you know, I was just thinking about him, like how this affects a guy like that. You know, you didn't get to see his full season last year, you know, and now this year. But you mentioned in the article that drafts a little bit later this year,
2: so maybe that helps a guy like him. Uh, kind of interesting. Yeah, an extra, an extra month to it, – it helps the cold-weather kids. As long as they have places to play, um, it is going to help them. So the draft – for folks who don't know, the draft is a month later this right. year. And that's probably a per- permanent change. They're going to do it during – um during all-star week it's going to happen the night of the futures game and that you know typically for cold weather kids it would be hard and i'm talking cold weather kids all across the northern part of the united states this applies to the upper midwest just well, the northeast and, and the pacific northwest those guys would just play they'd start later for weather reasons and then be seen fewer times it's often harder to justify uh you know devoting that many resources in a very short period of time. It's the end of this draft season. You're trying to rush in and get last looks at guys you might take with your first pick. Are you going to try to send everybody through to see a Joe Mack in, you know, when he might only play 15 games. Um, Now you have more time to do that. And there are, and major league baseball has also created an event in North Carolina at the end of June, where they're going to invite all the best high school kids. I don't know how many will come, but Joe Mack should go there's that he is exactly the type of player who should go to that. It's Dan or Noah Miller in Wisconsin. They should go do that because it's for them. It's just extra games that they didn't get in the spring.
1: It's always been interesting to me, you know, living in this area, you know, we're probably most known for hockey players, you know, like Patrick Kane is from here. Of course. And, um, Mm -hmm. you know, I think about Patrick Kane. I mean, he, he lived in a hockey rink 12 months a year, you know, and I think like if he was a great baseball player, You know, he wouldn't, you know, it's just always so fascinating to me. Like, I just think, like, people from Arizona, from Texas, California, they just seem to have such an advantage on someone like a Joe Mack, you know what I mean, who's just, you know, limited by how often he can play baseball by the weather in his area. You know, I live by, and it it frustrates me, because I live by a beautiful baseball complex right down the street, and it seems like by, you know, August 1st, they're done there. It's like, I just don't understand baseball season, In Buffalo and in Western New York and how it affects a kid like Joe Mack. And maybe I'm just asking in general, like it's a, it's a pretty safe assumption that man, these kids are just way behind players in Arizona. and things. they got to get out, find a way to play in the winter and a camp in
2: here or there or something. Right. Am I right about that? Or what they really, what they have to do is if I, if I had a son and he were a baseball player and that Delaware is not quite as cold as where you are, but we have a short season here. We do the kids. Here, only started their actual – they didn't delay the season here. And I think it was the very last week of March or the first week of April when they started playing games that count, not scrimmages, but actual scheduled game. We do have one prospect in the state of Delaware this year, which is more than we usually have, so it's kind of exciting. But I would absolutely and, – and this would cost money. This is a separate problem. It's a bit of a privilege that I could do such a thing. But I would find places for him to play in the summer and the fall once it became clear that he was a a good enough prospect maybe to go play division one baseball maybe get a partial scholarship right i would try to make those investments because not only does he need to play more as you were saying but he would need to play better competition playing around here this is true in most cold weather states he's just not he would not face a lot of really good competition. That is true of the one kid I mentioned who is a prospect in Delaware this year, where his biggest problem, I think, is going to be that he's not going to face any really good pitching. There's no, There are no hard throwers in the state of Delaware this year. There, there usually aren't. And that's true of kids in, you know, it's probably true of Mac. That was true of Kevin oh, sure. Meseracco. Yeah, I'm sure it is. In high school. Yep. Meseracco went to, uh, he's from Punxsutawney, Pennsylvania, and they walked him four times it's like well what the? why why did i even get on the plane and that, you know that unfortunately that doesn't happen in florida and california and, and texas nowhere near as often at least but it does happen in the cold weather states and so getting your kid out if you can afford to do so, i totally recognize a lot of people can't and that's a huge problem but if you can get him out to play more and face better competition it'll help him improve and eventually it gets to the point where college coaches and scouts can better evaluate a player when he's facing better competition. There's nothing worse than trying to figure out how good a hitter is when he's facing a guy throwing like 50 miles an hour.
1: Right. Just, oh, wow, this guy's hitting 831 this year. <laughs> like, oh, well. Right, yeah. right.
2: Yeah, well, of course he is. <laughs> yeah, he might as well be I, putting it on a tee.
1: Right, yeah, how do you put that in context, right? Yeah, It's that's really interesting to me. It's also really interesting to me you have Jack Leiter as your one, the 1-1 this year. Uh, seems like he's pretty high, far ahead of the pack. But it doesn't seem like you, you I, yeah, rate him. So. Yeah, it doesn't seem like you rate him as highly as some of the other pitchers we know in our heads as one ones. I think you even mentioned Strasburg and um, Garrett Cole in the column. Um, tell me more about that because that's interesting to me. So he's the one one, and he's pretty far ahead, at least in your opinion. But he's not quite at the level of previous one ones,
2: right? And yeah. I'm trying to trying to give people the most realistic picture possible because it had gone from look, before the season, I had lighter one, one. And at that point there were people saying, why isn't it Kumar rocker? And, and I said, look, they're pretty close, right? This is just my, my preference. And I thought lighter was had a better fastball and a little more advanced as a pitcher. And I, 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 I like, yeah. yeah, they're, yeah, they're team- both teammates. Yeah. And so I even said, look, if you want to put rocker one on your own list, that's fine. I'm not going to argue. I just happen to think lighter is slightly better. now that gap has grown as the season's gone on, and Leiter went on this run where he threw a no-hitter, 9 inning no-hitter, and then and then went 7 no-hit innings the next week, and I think in two outings after that, he got up 6 hits total. So he's been ridiculously dominant, and the narrative on him has been, well, maybe he's not as good as Kumar Rocker to, oh my god, this guy is, you know, an all-time elite pitching prospect, and I want fans, particularly Pirates fans, since they draft first overall, to go in with the the most accurate picture possible. And that everyone thinks lighter is good, but lighter is not all time dominant like Strasburg. uh, And he does not have the multiple plus weapons of a Garrett Cole, or even probably a David price who obviously went to Vanderbilt and he went one, one, and he's had an amazing career also. He, there is nobody in this draft class that I look at and say, that's Garrett Cole college high school. No one takes high school right-handers first overall anyway, uh, but that guy isn't out there. I don't think he's right. out there. If he's there, if he's out there somewhere, if Shane Bieber is in this draft class, well, Shane Bieber went in something like the fifth round. So there, we don't know who he is. And True. trust me, people are, are looking more. We're more open-minded about players like a like a Shane Bieber, but nobody sees him. And so saying Leiter is the best guy in the draft class, while acknowledging, hey, comparing him to past 1-1s, he's not in that class as some of those guys you know i hope people don't see that as some kind of insult to lighter i'd really like him i'd be very happy taking him first overall in this draft but recognizing i don't know that you're getting a future cy young winner either you might be getting the guy who's a really good number two starter for a pretty long time and that's a really good outcome in in a draft where there is no steven
0: Strasburg.
1: yeah and you know this happens in other sports too like sometimes andrew luck is the number one quarterback and sometimes it's JaMarcus Russell. Mm-hmm. You know or sometimes right. sometimes it's in the middle it's Matt Stafford. You know it doesn't have to be such a drastic like all or nothing like that but sometimes you know in the NHL sometimes Connor McDavid it's boom Connor McDavid's first overall this year. Wonderful. Sometimes Sidney Crosby is. You know other times it's someone who's not quite at that level. Um right. You know it can't be a generational pitcher every time or the oh. we wouldn't have the word generational, right? It's interesting, though... If you look...
2: Yes, that's a good point. Yeah. That is a good point. And Strasburg... We got spoiled, right? Because we had... A lot Strasburg in a row. Harper. Yeah. Harper was the next year. Cole was the year after that. And the year after that, Correa went one and Buxton went two. Right. That's a pretty good that's a, run that's at the top run. of the draft, guys. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Yeah. But then, you know, 2016, really not that long ago, Mickey Moniak went first. Now, at the time... Moniak is back up with the Phillies and he's going to play in the big leagues for a while. He's never going to be one, one good. However, um, you know, even at the time people didn't think Moniak was really the best player in the draft class. If you look at the rest of the draft class, it's, it just wasn't that good. There was nobody really in consideration at one, one that year who was worthy of going one, one Kyle Lewis might be the best of those candidates right now. Um, AJ Puck was there, but he's been constantly hurt. Nick Senzel, who I still really like, but he's been hurt a lot. Uh, that was just another year like this one, where the, that guy wasn't there. The Phillies picked first, and they looked at the draft class and said, we don't think any of these guys is really you know, an elite, no doubt, 1-1. So they tried to get creative with the money and you know, do a deal with Moniac so they could overspend on some later draft picks. It just didn't really work out. But I think their strategy was probably a pretty good one. And if the Pirates said they wanted to do that this year, where they said, you know what, maybe Lighter wants a little more money, then we'll pay, we'll take Henry Davis of Louisville, who's really a catcher and really good, we'll pay him a little under slot so that when we pick again at, I think, 37, we can go way over slot on a high school player we love. You know what? Absolutely. This is the right year to do something like that because you're not passing on Strasburg, Harper, or Cole. Right. Was Cole the last time they drafted 1-1? Yes. Yeah, that's,
1: yes, I, that's yeah, correct. It's yeah. not the
2: only time, because I think they didn't they have... Was Chris Benson a 1-1 pick? Sounds, I believe they picked 1-1. Right. Yeah. They picked 1-1 at some point in the 90s.
1: Okay, yeah. That's interesting, though. It's, it, it's interesting for managing a fan base, too. When the last time you were in the spot, you got Cole. You know, so it's hard yes. to... It doesn't help with tempering expectations at all, either. Um last thing on the on, on this kind of thing we'll talk about the book for a little bit before i let you go um i think about guys who aren't on their major league baseball teams right now prospects because of the manipulation with the with the years and the Service time yeah service time and all that which can be over you know it's hard to 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 figure for a fan sometimes like well no just get him here and the strategy of it and the finances whatever but who are the guys, in your opinion? You know, I'm watching what Acuna is doing right now. I saw a chart about his bad ball swinging, you know, where he's down mm-hmm. to like 9, 9% nine or something like that. It's, yes. You know, silly. His development's been silly. Um, and uh, I'm just wondering about players that are not with the major league teams right now that you think could have an impact on the major league season. Is there someone out there, like I remember when Guerrero came up for the Blue Jays late or, you know, Cunha yeah. was on my mind because he came into the Braves later in the season. Is there someone like that that you think can impact the season this year that we're waiting to uh,
2: to see? Um, I mean, Jared Kalanick with the Mariners, and obviously people are watching because the now departed Mariners CEO, Kevin Mather, made pretty overt comments about manipulating Kalanick's service time. Um, but with Taylor Trammell, who I really love as a player and a person, he's really struggling so far. And that's not a shock because Trammell, although I know he looked really good in spring training last time we saw him in games, he, he did have some trouble in double a. So I think giving Trammell this cup of coffee, that's great. Good for him. He's got a couple of home runs, I believe. So, you know, good first taste, but say, all right, we're going to send you triple a starting soon. We're going to send you down. We're going to have you go back. there to work on your approach call Kalanick up because I think Kalanick is going to be the better. He's going to be more productive for them the rest of the season. I think he could really help the big league club. We'll see Wander Franco, my number one overall prospect. We'll see him with the Rays at some point. We should see Alex Kirloff back up with the Twins. was up for they beat his debut in the playoffs last year, which is always kind of exciting. I think he'll be up. And I wonder if we'll win if, and when we'll see Matt Manning with the tigers um, where he's supposed to be fully healthy. He was a little banged up last year, a little arm soreness, and that, I think, is the only reason he didn't debut. But, you know, if Tariq Skubal continues to struggle or they just want to add a starter maybe help give some of their, you know, Mize and Skubal some extra rest, you know, Manning was, he's neck and neck to me with Skubal. You know, pick your poison. They're both really, really good prospects for the Tigers. Tigers have three elite starting pitching prospects. And I would like to see Manning at some point in the big leagues. I think he would have been up last year. I loved that they brought up Mize and Skruble and said, come up and let's, you know, let's work some stuff out. We'd rather have you develop in the big leagues than pitch at the alternate site. So I'm really hoping we'll see Manning at some point this year. And, and even if he's not great right out of the chute, so what? You're not making the playoffs this year. Right. Let them come up and struggle. Sure. You you have a
1: really interesting article on Athletic right now, too, that you put out April 9th about the players on your top 100 prospect ranking that are on the teams kind of the opposite of what I said it's interesting from the Braves perspective having two of the top 15 as a Braves fan someone who grew up in Buffalo and became a Braves fan because they were the one team I could watch every day you know what I mean TBS made me a Braves fan you know I'm sure a lot of people across the country are like this it's like wow we don't have a team I can it was pre yes network you know or maybe I'd be a Yankee fan but whatever um I was really worried about Ian Anderson and um Soroka coming into this year like I don't know they just had so much success in the playoffs I was like I don't know I don't know is it going to get into this like next time around kind of thing with them now and everyone was home watching the playoffs I was worried about them and they have both struggled a little bit and then with Christian I thought okay better fielder at first and that's been true but he's man he strikes out it seems like every time I don't know what do you think about these guys on the Braves what do you think about Maybe in general, the guys on this list, this is a great article. Another great reason to get The Athletic is Keith's work on guys kind of coming in, the work you do with the prospects, on the, it's amazing. But um, what do you think about these guys coming into the league and and how they might do as the year goes on?
2: Yeah, well, with, with Pache, we knew this was a risk. And if they right. chose to send him down at some point, although I was – I was good with them putting him on the opening day roster because the defense is elite. Elite.
1: And I, I mean, he's thought, won a game with it. I, oh yeah. Yeah, he's
2: already won a game yeah. with a catch, and you know, in the outfield. I mean, if he plays the full season, if they don't send him down, um, he should win the Gold Glove. I mean, he's probably going to be the most valuable center fielder on right. defense. I yeah. Mean, in baseball, wow. he's ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, to me, he is. He is potentially in an Andrew Jones' class. Now, Andrew Jones was in a class by himself. Right. But. Pache, has a lot of the same elements at least. And Pache will run into 20 home runs if you give him a full season, but if he continues to strike out at this rate and only, you know, can't get his OBP much over 250 or so, you can't you can't carry that guy in the lineup. And if they said we're going to send you back to AAA, which I think he had little or no triple-A experience. He may have even finished in Double-A in 2019. Yeah, very you little. You can to right, so you can send him to AAA and say, "Here's what you're working on and you're going to come back when we see better at that." That's it. That's especially what, you know, more simple, a simpler thing to tell a player to work on them. We're going to call you up in your defense is better because yeah. it's harder for him himself to measure that.
1: And I mean, he's only 22 so I wouldn't years be opposed
2: old. To, yeah, he's only, he is a baby. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. And I remain a huge fan, but it is what it is, right? If the at-bats are really poor and they have been really poor so far, you do have to recognize that. And Anderson's case. And I, I, obviously I still rank both guys very highly. So what we're talking about here, these are, Sort of, I think, short-term obstacles. Sure. With Anderson, what worried me about him, the changeup was ridiculous, and it and is it, it is absolutely ridiculous. It's action, it's arm speed, it's uh, it's deception, and the, the 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 arm speed deception and the deception from what is now known as spin axis, which you can read. Uh, you know, Mike Petriello has written a lot about it. You can find it on Baseball Savant. Uh, you know, it's sort of a new thing that a new way to quantify a type of deception. Anderson's got it, and it's part of, part of why hitters um, have such a hard time distinguishing his fastball and his changeup. For me, though, I, I do worry that the fastball is not super high quality. I think it's good enough, and the changeup makes it better. And he really doesn't have a great breaking ball. And so maybe last year gave us too much short-term confidence, even though long-term, he's going to be a really good pitcher. I absolutely think he'll have a good, long career, probably as a number two starter, but I could see him having some adjustment trouble this year. Now his first full year in the league, like you said, going around the league multiple times, hitters get a little more used to seeing him. Absolutely. Would not surprise me at the end of this year, this year he has a four ERA because he is making some of those adjustments. And then next year he drops it a bunch and continues to make adjustments back to the hitters as they've made adjustments to him. He's good enough to get there eventually, Sure, but I think we, and I include myself in this, sometimes when a prospect comes up and has success right away, we assume, yep, straight line, right to, you know, it's just, it's all up from here and forget that, especially when they're, when players are young and now we've got a whole, you know, a lot of missed development time from 2020, it may not be so direct, it may not be so, so linear. There could easily be ups and downs, even if the destination for them remains a number two starter, uh, an occasional all-star, or a gold glove winner. Sometimes I
1: think we're guilty of of thinking that all development happens before the major leagues. You know what I mean like I mentioned mm-hmm. later, like I saw someone getting picked on by old hot takes exposed or whatever saying the Braves should trade high on him because you know because his swing rate was bad or whatever and, and it's like oh he's changed he's gotten better it's like well yeah he's entering his prime now. Like of course like right of course he's getting better I don't know. Maybe a mistake we make sometimes last thing on this, and I'll get one or two in on the book quickly. Um, there's about 20 guys on this list in this article we're talking about so far from what you've seen. Do you think the rookie of the year is someone from this article or is it someone who hasn't
2: played yet? I always bet on the guys who've got playing time Be making a major league roster on opening day is a big advantage for winning rookie of the year. I mean, essentially Jake Cronenworth, uh, ended up ahead of, um, and Devin Williams both ended up ahead of Cabrian Hayes in the voting last year. Williams won. Cronenberg was kind of the favorite for most of the season yeah. last year over Cabrian Hayes, who was, by, statistically speaking, the most valuable rookie in the National League last year because the first two guys played the whole season, and he didn't. And I think that is remains a huge advantage. Just more playing time means more impressive counting stats, and voters still look at those. I would argue too much. Now a player can come up May 1st and mash for the rest of the season and win rookie of the year. It does happen. But if you're asking me to bet, is it somebody who's who gets to play a full April? just, is this going to be somebody who plays six months or somebody who plays four or five months? I will always say, give me the pool of players who played the six months versus the pool of players who played less than the full season. And it's just for that one reason alone. Right. Fair point. All right.
1: Sportscaster here, finishing up with Keith law. About a year ago, he was on the show. You can go to the archives and hear. We did a full interview just on the book. Uh, It's called The Inside Game, Bad Calls, Strange Moves, and What Baseball Behavior Teaches Us About Ourselves. Um, It's just been released on paperback now, or is going to be real soon while we're talking. We're right in that window. It's out. Okay, It is out. Yeah, the paperback is out. Um, Is there anything different about the book in paperback? Did you add a chapter or anything like that, or is it just – paperback versus hardcover no
2: we 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 didn't we uh, we did not this time i believe for smart baseball there was a little bit of an addendum but okay. not much of a season last year right what has changed i think it's funny yeah. i think i actually right yeah, yeah. Not, not enough has changed and also um i think there's a passage in there where i talk about well you know what with vaccine hesitancy what might happen in the next pandemic well there it is, there it is i right. didn't know it was coming but it's already there so we can just we'll just Leave that and let it stand for
1: itself. Sure. Let me ask you this. I have guys, gals, whoever, come in all the time on the book, and I will look at what they've done, and it seems like something gets picked up on for every book, and it's a theme of, like, every interview. Was there something for this book that kind of got picked up on that you felt like you were talking about all the time um, that surprised you? Is there anything that, Kind of, you're hoping as you go around again with paperback, kind of emerges as more of a a a bigger talking point for the book. Um, you, you know what I'm you know what I'm asking. Hopefully, I, pull, yes, I pulled absolutely. that off. Yeah,
2: yeah. You know, it's and I don't know if it's because just because it's something I talk about in the first chapter, or if it's because it's kind of a hot button topic. But people really zeroed in on the the logical argument for an automated strike zone, right. which we are going to see, absolutely going to see. Um, I think we may see it as soon as next year. It, it may depend on the CBA, but I think in general, if there are enough people on both sides in favor of this. We're going to see an automated strike zone, and we're going to see a universal DH once we get to the next collective bargaining agreement. And I think people liked seeing an argument, The argument that I make in the book that umpires as humans are inherently biased by what the last call was. If the last pitch was called a ball, they're more likely to call the next pitch a strike and vice versa. And that is anchoring bias. And that alone is, I think, sufficient argument for saying, let a computer, let a machine essentially do this. Even if the machine is making errors at the same rate that the human did, they will be unbiased and more predictable errors. And hitters and pitchers would prefer if they know where the errors are going to be. If the pitch that splits the strike zone in two is 100% of the time called a strike, the pitch that is four inches off the plate is 100% of the time called a ball, both sides will be happier with that. And it seemed like what I was bringing forward in the book was not unique. I did not entirely invent the argument. But for a lot of people, it might have been the first time they'd seen the argument, as opposed to just, these umpires stink. Don't let them do it. I don't want to see Angel Hernandez making ball strike calls anymore. Well, you know what? I don't either, but we need a better argument than that, right? We right. need to be, let's be rational people. Let's hold ourselves to the same standard uh, to which we'd like to hold our politicians. We want to see evidence-based policymaking. And I think that here, I hopefully I synthesized arguments of others in a way that you could read that chapter, the first chapter of the book, and walk away and say, here's a good Calm, rational argument for an automated strike
1: zone. I know it's not a strike zone, but the other night, and I hate to bring the Braves up again, but it's probably the biggest umpire-related thing of the season so far. Yes, that that, that are the mats. That are the mats. Because yeah. uh, I know what I you're talking about. Yeah, exactly I knew what you were talking about. Yeah. yeah. So here's here's where where I was at after the game because in case nobody's seen it, um, you know the Braves. It's the top of the ninth, I guess, in a tie game, and uh, it's a hit out to outfield, and um, I can't remember if it was a tag up or a single, what the case was, but there's a play at the plate, and the guy never touches the plate, and is ruled safe, and then they review it, and he's still ruled safe. And I just remember thinking, like, you know, if they didn't review it, I wouldn't be that mad. I'd just be like, Mm -hmm. oh, it's such a bang-bang thing, and we didn't get the call. We'll get the next one. You know, but I was just right. so mad because it's like, well, why, why are we doing this at all? You know, why are we right. stopping the game? Why are we having, if we if we still get it wrong? You know, and I just wonder if that bleeds into into the automated strike zone in the sense that, well, I turn into this guy who's like, why did we give up our game to computers to still be frustrated? You know, like, right. you know, I because like you said, like, yeah, Hernandez, that's annoying, but. I don't know, there's still an element of like, Yeah, well, when he's back there, we know. You know, we know it's gonna be like this. You know, we're ready. You know, I always grew up with baseball It's like, man, I you know, especially as a Braves guy, like, man, I hope we get this pitch tonight, you know, and and I'm sure Right. You know, I don't know. Like I and and by the way, I'm a huge Saints fan, and probably without saying anything, you know what happened to me as a fan in two thousand eighteen. You know mm-hmm. and I just don't know. Like, and then they tried to fix that in football the next year, and it didn't. It was a disaster. Still, so I don't know. I'm so torn at stuff like this. What did 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 seeing what happened the other night? Does it change your opinion either way? And also with the Mets, you know, the guy gets his elbow gets his elbows hanging over the top of the plate, and he gets hit. And I mean, that was like the winning run, yep. right? You know, so that's so, not reviewable.
2: Not reviewable right? in that, that case, that right? Is just, right. Yeah. So look, I I don't love replay. I've always I said, God, it's gotta be 10 years ago or more before they considered replaying baseball. I said, I'd rather see an automated strike zone than replay. And if you okay. get the automated strike zone in first, then go to replay because the automated strike zone, well, at the time the technology was not great, but my ar- my argument essentially was they could invest in this and we'll get there. And then they did. It turned out they were already doing stuff to put in the Statcast cast system that would allow them to do an automated strike zone. And the good thing about the automated strike zone is it doesn't slow the game down at all. You don't have these two, three minute or more delays like you do with replay. Right. That, that said, instant. replay yeah. a replay the a problem we run into this is availability bias, which I discuss in the book too, which is you know, that play you're talking about, we're gonna talk about that for a while because so we're gonna remember it because they screwed it up. Yep. There's no way that the replay office should have come back and said we don't see enough evidence to overturn the call on the field. That's the standard of right. evidence. not right? enough yeah, to overtune. It, it was right there. Yeah. And they just they just blew it. Whatever, yep. they blew it. Yep. And that you will remember that all season. The same way we still talk about Jerry Meals says he's safe from that, you know, seventeen inning extra training scheme. That's eight like eight years ago now. And right. I can or the still perfect game. make a Jerry Meals joke. Yeah, or the perfect game, yep. the Armando Colorado the yep. game. We remember those. Sure. The World Series was at 87 with the Cardinals. Yeah. Oh, the Don Denkinger. Yep, yep, yep. 85. 85, 85, okay, sorry, yeah. Right, those perfect examples. stick out in your memory for specific reasons, but because they are available, quickly available to your mind, they call your opinion. And in this case, because this is both available and recent, the one from Sunday night against the Phillies, uh, where Alex Baum still hasn't touched the plate. Right because of that right he never will <laughs> it turns out and and because of that it is coloring kind of everyone's opinion on replay and to which i would say you know what replay as a whole gets more calls right than it doesn't if you look at the whole set of data the entire body of evidence it turns out replay is a just in terms of getting calls right it's a net good now we can argue over whether that is justified whether that is enough to justify the cost in terms of slowing games down. Mm-hmm. And we can talk about whether we need to refine the process to get more calls right. What went wrong on Sunday and how can we fix that? But to me, I can't let one pretty egregious mistake on Sunday color my entire opinion of replay, because that would be falling for availability bias. And that's a whole chapter in the inside game is why that, why we do that because it's normal. Everybody does this and what the, solution is which in this case is what i just said you would look at hey take a look at several years of replay calls in general and how often did they result in overturning an errant call on the field and maybe occasionally the replay turn- overturned it and got it wrong i don't think that happens very often look at all of that in general is replay making the game more accurate turns out the answer is yes
1: that's fair uh the uh an argument i always make because you know especially in football You know, I'm like, I'd love to junk replay. I'd love to just throw it right out of the window, but I'm too scared then that, like, there's going to be a goal line play next year, you know, to decide the Super Bowl, and the running back's going to be down at the half yard line, and they're going to call him in. And we junk replay, so we can't change it, and the wrong team's going to win the Super Bowl. You know what I mean? Like, and and I feel that way, I guess, about baseball, too. Like, okay, they blew that one, but if, you know, if the Francisco Cabrera play, um you know happens this, oh yeah you know happens this year and um and, and that's one that man that'd be a sticky replay because you know i'm not really sure I, I was never really sure but let's just say he's, he's very 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 clearly safe and uh, they had called him out man it, it would suck not to be able to fix that you know what i mean so i don't know right it, they got us like the, the technology they got us uh the, the 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 book is called the inside game bad call strange moves and what baseball behavior teaches us about ourselves, and maybe we made it sound a little nerdy, but it's not. Um, it's not a nerdy. It's not a nerdy book at all. It's a fun baseball read, and a lot of really relevant stuff about where the game is or where the game's going. Um, so definitely check that out. And um, beyond the book, which is a one-time joy, uh, a repeated gift is Keith's work on the Athletic, uh, which I remember back when I signed up for the Athletic a few years ago. I signed up because they were covering Saints football, and I remember just not being ah. sure. Like, so does this mean I get everything? Yes, it means you get everything. And one of the things you, you, one of the things you get is Keith's awesome stuff about prospects and the draft. And if you're into that kind of a thing, um, nobody covers it better, really. So um, you can find out more. What is it at Keith Law on uh, yes. Twitter? Correct. And uh, what about? Yes, uh, uh, give us one board game recommendation. Um, what's the what's <laughs> what's the board game we gotta be playing right now? Because you get this from Keith too. Oh, yeah, yeah,
2: yes, yeah. I do. A, I, for folks who don't know, I do a ton of board game reviews. Yeah. So oh. I'll I'll give you two just, just okay. in case for folks who've never me. really played good board games. Who are like, wait, there are different board games. My starter recommendation is always Ticket to Ride. Ticket to Ride. You yeah. Find it everywhere. Yeah. It's a basic. Tr- it's a train game. You're just laying tracks, laying ma- laying your trains out on a map. The base game is the United States. Five minutes to learn, can play it with kids of most ages. Better than Catan, uh, has a lot. Better than Catan is like a an in between yeah, starter game. it, actually, okay. it is. Okay, Catan, Catan requires a minimum of three players. You can play Ticket to Ride with two. Sure, okay. T- uh, ticket to Ride is faster to learn. Gotcha. Um, and the other game I'll say is for folks who've played a lot of board games, maybe, or played a bunch of. You know, you played Ticket to Ride, you played Catan. You say I went up my game. No pun intended. Okay, pun totally intended. Um, <laughs> There was a game about two years ago called Wingspan that I think is the best new game of the last five years, at least. It is a little more complex, a little more sophisticated, but doesn't it still plays in less than an hour. The art's amazing. The design is amazing. I think it has good replay value and is it's just really not that hard to learn. It looks a little intimidating, I think, to first-time players, and I thought it might be. But after I played it once, it's like, no, 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 I, g- I get this. This is actually pretty straightforward, and it's such a brilliant design. The designer is an avid bird watcher on the side of her day job, which is not even designing games. So she's very talented. And she really incorporated the characteristics of over 100 species of North American birds into the game. So the wow. game is very accurate to nature and to its theme, which I just think is really impressive. It just requires so much more work to make it right like that, and I'm very proud I, I really respect when someone puts in that kind of effort and says, nope, this is all going to work together. I'm not just pasting on some ancient Egypt theme on a different game. She made a game that really works together from start to finish. And I've been boosting that game for several years now, both because I love it and because you know what, when someone does something like this, just a brilliant design like this, I, you know, I want to share it. I want that person to really reap the rewards of her work. Sometime I got to have you back
1: just to talk about games. Cause it's fascinating <laughs> to me. Uh, but very, very last thing. I'll let you go after this. Is there a mm-hmm. sports board game via trivia based or some kind of stimulation type game? I remember when as a kid, I had this game. I think it was a little ahead of its time. You had to pick your lineup and like Mark McGuire had a little spinner, but he had a really big power yep. section, but he also had like a really big strikeout section. You had to kind of balance, mm-hmm. you know, your lineup that way. I, I couldn't remember the name or whatever. But I remember loving playing it. Is there a sports game via trivia based or otherwise that you recommend?
2: people love stratomatic i've never been a stratomatic player it's not because i don't like it or anything i just kind of didn't have friends who were into it as a kid kind of the gold standard right play it yeah yeah it absolutely is yeah there is a silly game called baseball highlights 2045 that came out i don't know four years ago maybe and it is baseball themed but they're not trying to be super accurate to baseball it's a little, you know, you're just playing with a little deck of cards that you'll get to customize a little bit as you play by adding and deleting players from your little deck. It's supposed to be your little roster. And it plays very quickly. You're just doing almost like a couple of innings of a, of a game. Um, and it's like cheeky. It's very much, we're, hey, we're not really being that serious. But also the guy who designed it clearly knows baseball and tried to incorporate some of that. And it's just, two, just for two players. And my daughter just liked that one immediately and okay. she's still enough of a baseball fan, but she likes the fact that it, it plays kind of quick. How old is you she? Can, you can even just, she now she's 14. Okay. Right? So she would have been about maybe 10 when we first got it. She loves gotcha. it. We, we play games all the time. Yeah. But I think of all the baseball games by saying, but because baseball highlights 2045 is, is not trying to be super accurate it actually works a little more in its favor. So it's like, you know what? We're not going to, Statomatic does that. They do the super accurate kind. We're not going to try to do that. We're going to try to take a baseball theme and make it fun and a little bit silly, but yeah. also let you let you think a little bit more. You know, there are a couple of little strategy things in there. And it's it's just very much kind of a back and forth. Oh, You do that, well, I'm going to do this. And that makes for a good two player game for me. You need that sort of take that
1: element. Build a championship baseball team filled with naturals, cyborgs, and robots. Sounds fun. Yes, yeah, yes,
2: yeah, the cards and the card the slayer names, the cards, the names on the cards are all totally absurd. It's like Cy Clemens and <laughs> the, you know, they right. they're all be they're they're being totally ridiculous. And it's great. I actually think it's great. I, I like the fact that there's sort of a wink and a nod. Yes, yeah, we know we're being silly you're in on the joke all
1: right well when baseball season comes down i have to call you back and say let's do 30 minutes on just games so i can pick your brain on
2: this
1: (laughs) is there anything else you want to mention or plug before i let you go
2: no that's that's really like i said like you said keith law on twitter and uh look for my work on the athletic and the inside game you can buy it anywhere but i have been telling people all all pandemic if you've got a local independent bookstore sure give them a call they don't have it in stock and many do they'll order it for you and bookstores have been hit so hard by the pandemic yeah i know a few have closed a lot of my favorites are still open but i know i know they they're they, they've been hurting and the more that i can steer business to them and i'm steering my own business to them too good advice um you know i think the better yeah we need those we need independent bookstores they are the to me they're the lifeblood of the industry i think it was sl price gave
1: me a website which i should keep around to give out where you Probably can go where you can bookstore. go to it and it will order from a local store what did you say it was Bookshop.org. Yep, yep, I think that's what it was. Yep. Yep.
2: All the links now on my, I have a personal site also, and all my links to books on my own site, I used to use Amazon. I used to be an Amazon affiliate, and I mean, I still have that, but Bookshop set up an affiliate program too, and I switched, I've been switching all my book links over to there because, um, but for that reason, because it's the best way, if you don't, especially a lot of people don't have an independent bookstore nearby, but you know what a bookshop makes it easy for you and sure. you could order from you can set it so that hey make all my purchases come from this bookstore in you know it could be the tattered cover in denver or midtown scholar in harrisburg or whoever it doesn't have to be your local bookstore it'll be a local bookstore and you're doing good while also getting books which is also what we all want who doesn't want more books keith thank you so much i enjoyed this
0: yeah my pleasure
1: So could've used a few pounds. tight pants, points, hauling and noun. She was a black hair beauty with big dark eyes. And points all her own. Sudden way up high. Way firm and high. I wanna thank Keith Law for Being on the podcast today, I appreciate having Keith back on. Enjoyed that conversation. We went everywhere from board games to baseball prospects. That was a fun one to do. Okay, book club update. And I got the beautiful Paula Bennett back with me, who apparently just wants to make sound effects on the podcast today. I, don't you got anything to say to the people? I don't know. What's the latest book you've read? We're talking about books right now. I don't know. I don't have any books I read. You haven't read anything? Mouse and, Mouse and the Motorcycle. Yeah. And then yeah. what did you and I read? We read two books together. Yeah. Mo- the and Fantastic Mr. Fox. Yeah. Yep, I rolled out. What's the book we bought today? We bought the... BFG. BFG. Book Club, Book of the Month, Tom Boujour and Richard Beanstalk, mm-hmm. Nothing But a Good Time, The Uncensored History of the 80s Hard Rock Explosion. I recorded one hour with Tom and Richard yesterday or the day before or whatever day it was before I fell asleep for a week. Uh, And that was really fun. Turned out great. I'm going to put that up with an interview I did with Paige Hamilton of Helmet about a month ago. So we'll have a rock and roll episode in a week or two here uh, now that that stuff's all recorded. Uh, That'll be up soon. Uh, Also on the book club, and we're going to deal with it now. In a minute, it's So Many way to, Ways to Lose by Devin Gordon. And it's about the Mets, the amazing true story of the New York Mets, the best, worst team in sports. And this interview is super fun. I'm really excited for everyone to hear it, especially my Mets fans. So we'll get to that in one second. The only other thing I wanted to say about the book club is we're out of books right now. Uh, so if there's anything you want me to read or include or any authors you want me to reach out to, I saw a book at Barnes & Noble today about the movie Dazed and Confused. An oral history that looked pretty cool. Maybe I'll reach out to that author. But uh, everything we have right now is is read. Uh, so we need more books for the book club. If there's anything, the sportscasters at gmail.com. Paul, anything else you want to mention about books? Um,
2: get more books. Yeah,
1: that's it. Okay, we'll take a break. We'll be right back with Devin Gordon. Our second guest today is a graduate of Duke. He has experience at Newsweek Magazine, GQ, where he is an executive editor. And he's the author of a new book about the Mets. And I'm excited to talk to him today. He's making his sportscaster's debut. A warm welcome to Devin Gordon. Hey, Devin. How you doing today?
0: I'm doing great. Thanks for having me.
1: So many ways to lose. The amazing true story of the New York Mets. The best, worst team in sports. You know, it's funny. Whenever I meet someone, I'm in Buffalo, so whenever I meet someone from the city, as we call it, when you're from Buffalo, the city, um, <laughs> I always and they tell me they're a Mets fan. I'm always like, it's so odd. Why didn't you pick the Yankees? You could have had so many World Series and stuff. That seems like so much more fun. Uh, but I get it. I do get it. I get the appeal, uh, especially as someone who's been a Saints fan my yeah. my entire life. Um. But uh, how did it happen for you? How, how did you become a? Met yeah, sorry, fan? you. you which, sorry,
0: which you're a Bills fan, I assume. No, I assume
1: you're no, I've been did a Bills. I've been a Saints fan since 1987. So.
0: Oh, okay. Well, you know the the the, the, the Saints are kind of like the, the 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 Bills of the Bayou, I guess. Right. Sure.
1: Except we won a Super Bowl. You know, we actually won one. You know, we cashed. That's true. We that's cashed true. our you guys, chip. You guys got yours. Yeah, you we yours. cashed our chip. You know, we only but, got you one. Know, for
0: a long time, it was the paper bags. Sure. The paper yeah. Bags oh of
1: yeah. The heads, yeah. Right. You were yeah.
0: there.
1: I was there for very lean years. I mean, I lived through the Dick era. You know, the good and the bad of the Hassel era. I mean, like I said, I was a fan from 2000 and, or 1987. Sean Payton and Drew Brees didn't get there until 2006. You know, so that's a long time. Um, but what about for you? How did how did it happen? Just you, just. Born that way, or is there any well, story? You
0: know, like- I, I mean, I was definitely born that way. I definitely do think that, on some level, the Mets choose you. You don't choose <laughs> the Mets, right? Right. Um, so, you know, if you think that there's, you know, I think a lot of Mets fans think that this was a, a an act of volition. Um, they're wrong. Um, it was predestined. But to the extent that there is a moment when it clicks into gear, who you are and what you are. Um, for me, you know, I was I'm a child of the eighties, the mid eighties. So the eighty six Mets won the World Series, the only juggernaut the Mets had ever had, were were, were ironically my formative Mets team. Sure. I was born into the Mets being good. And not only being good, but being this team that seemed to have mar- miraculous things either happen for them or to them, and very rarely in between. That was that was the Mets universe that I was sort of born into. And, and so it was sort of coded into my DNA. And if you were, you know, if you were a kid growing up in the, the New York suburbs in the, in the mid-1980s, um, and you weren't uh, the son of a, of a Mets fan or, bo- or a Yankee fan, born into a Yankee family, if you weren't from the Bronx or adjacent right to the Bronx...
1: Or a huge man, um, guy.
0: There was a good chance. Yeah. Yeah, there was a good chance you were going to be a Mets fan because they were the fun, colorful team on the upswing... And for me, it was colors. They were blue and orange. They sure. had a guy named Strawberry on their team. I mean, you know, you have a choice at that age between blue and orange, fun, rising young team, Doc Gooden, Daryl Strawberry, or the middling, angry <laughs>
1: the boss. Yankees with yeah, the, the boss the shouting boss. at
0: Dave Winfield. Yeah. You know, yeah, it, it, it was. It wasn't actually that hard a choice if you had a choice to make. Right. You know, a lot of kids in those, you know, in in that in that era in that area, don't have a choice to make. You inherit your team. Right. Um, But I didn't, and so I made the right I made the right choice, and I've been paying for it for the rest of my life.
1: You know, what's super interesting to me is so I have like about two thousand followers on Twitter, maybe not even quite that many. Um, but I know every one of them that's a Mets fan you know, everyone that I follow back, I know they're a Mets fan because there's just a certain passion that goes with it. And a certain, (laughs) there's this one guy who, his name is James Flippen. And he did uh, the audio for the Artie Lang podcast and did a lot of work with Artie Lang. Um, And I just, Uh I just know it's baseball season when I see his tweets because they just the tenor and the tone of them turns, you know, it's like, no one has artfully used the F word more, you know, more, more gracefully on Twitter than James in yeah. the, the reference to the Mets, you know?
0: And it's like, well, I put well, out... I really... We're good at being fans. We're yeah. good at being yeah. fans. And I think it comes down to what you're describing is, is that we're very lucky, ironically, as Mets fans. This is the way in which not expecting to win and losing so often and so frequently with such catastrophes Starts to work for us, which is if you're a Yankee fan, there is really no purpose to the game you are watching other than winning it. Right? That's what we're here for. It's
1: very cutthroat. Very cutthroat. The Bronx. Yeah.
0: It was a waste of time. It wasn't just you lost. Oh well, those were three hours of your human existence wasted, and that just seems like a really miserable way to go through life, and certainly not way I would want to be a fan of sports. I do this because it's fun and the minute to minute craziness of it, the shock of it, the surprise of it, the emotional roller coaster that's always what the appeal of this has been for me. And so it's possible for me to enjoy, you know, like as I write in the book, the Mets, probably the most celebrated, most beloved home run in Mets history came in a regular season game in early May. Oh, against the last place Padres, it was Bartolo Colon hitting Uh-oh. a home run that didn't okay. even matter.
1: I was thinking 9 nine eleven piazza. That, I mean,
0: <laughs> look, you were thinking like the piazza, the piazza nine eleven home run is the most important, emotionally stirring. Sure, and and it's probably you know the Mets moment that all of baseball, other than Buckner, is sort of loves the most. Right, but you know, as a pure Mets fan, just in our fan base. That Bartolo Colon home run was the Metziest home run of our existence, and Gary Cohen's call was extraordinary. It's that's the one, and can you imagine a Yankee fan feeling that way? Like I always talk about, like our 2019 season uh, when the Mets finished in third place. I think our record was 83 and 79. One of my favorite baseball seasons of all time because the team was just exhilaratingly crazy. Pete Alonso was Bashing home runs all over the place. Jacob DeGrom was turning into Tom Seaver. It right. was so much fun. Yeah, I can't imagine a Yankee fan ever saying a third place season was fun.
1: Well, and you know, a third place season is
0: a disaster.
1: And I was thinking, like, you know what else is a disaster? The year they lost Game Seven of the ALCS on the Altuve home run. Like, even that is viewed as a disaster, yes. right? Like, they don't even take any pleasure in that. You know, where I think back to two thousand five. And the Mets, the, you know, the strike three looking, last out of the season, like, okay, tough way to end, especially after that catch. You know, you think when that catch is made, it's like, yep. okay, you know, they're going to win this. Like, you don't get a catch that good and not win. But still, I think that that's a beloved team and a beloved season, no? I mean, the 2019 Yankees, if that's uh, the year, they're hated. They didn't they didn't get it done. They let Altuve. Maybe it was 18, whatever. Um, but what about, like, 05 Mets? It's a different feeling, no? Well, 2000? 2000, that 2016
0: is my favorite Mets team. It's my favorite team. Okay. I love that team. It, it was is. I've been a Mets fan for for yeah, it was 2006. Okay, my bad. Um, I was thinking Deltron, 2005. Uh, Watch those three pitches. Okay, no, yeah, close. yeah, you're close. I mean, yeah. you know, 2000, 2006 was. Um, I loved that team. Jose yeah. Reyes. I, Carlos Delgado was on my on that team. Pedro Martinez, who is my all time favorite pitcher, even before he was on the Mets. Um, I loved that team, and what you described is literally a chapter in my book. Like the chapter, first chapter I read. Game opens, opens, yeah, opens with me saying I was convinced when Nandy made that catch—the only time in my life that we were going to win the World Series. So that should have been my warning that something terrible was about to happen, right? Right. And so you know that 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 I was actually at that game in person, and that game is the messiest game I have ever experienced. I don't know that it's possible to have a Metsier game, like, you know, as I describe it to friends, that game was like 1986 in reverse, right? In 86, you get um, absolutely heart-stomped, and then you have the miracle of all miracles, right? right. Well, 80, the, the 2006 postseason, the NLCS Game 7 was the reverse. We had the miracle of all miracles with ND making the greatest postseason catch in history. Unbelievable. Not just a catch, Unbelievable. doubled off. Doubled off the runner and ended the inning. Yeah, unbelievable. Doubled off the runner and ended the inning. That's why it's the greatest catch. And I was in the upper deck. I literally thought the stadium was going to collapse. I was sure we were going to win. And then two innings later, with, by the way, extra dose of messiness. right? Andy Chavez on second base with the tying run. Carlos, nobody has a better view of those strikes than Andy Chavez. And Carlos Beltran, watch. He's our best postseason hitter I am going to say an
1: all-time great postseason hitter too like an all-time like he he made his money the only reason the Mets signed him yes
0: playoff hitting yep I think you're Uh, yeah he he went he went he nearly single-handedly won the World Series for the Houston Astros in 2004 that is why the Mets signed him if he had hit a single and drove in driven in the tying runs in in, in that game 7 instead of striking out he would have been the NLCS MVP he was having an incredible series
1: and he just so froze course, or something.
0: He just won. Nothing. And, of course, he, he didn't even swing.
1: Oh, my God.
0: Didn't even swing. So Unbelievable. So, you know, that's that's a Mets way to lose, right? You're talking about Jose Altuve knocking out the, Mets, knocking out the Yankees with a home run. Well, look, every team gets knocked out of a postseason game at some point, usually. Most teams. I shouldn't say all teams. With a, just a gut-wrenching home run. That happens. That's sports. The way the Mets lose is extra special, you know what I mean? That's not just a, a, a last, you know, a, a walk-off home run by the other team's superstar player. If it was the Mets, it would be the end of the bench pinch hitter, right? Who got thrust into the situation because someone else got hurt, right? Like a, a Francisco Cabrera. That's how the Mets Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. Francisco Cabrera right. or Luis Soho, right? Or, sure, you know. That's the Mets. We lose because Luis Soho homers, or Mark Lemke gets the hit, or even Marty Barrett, like it was in '86. It's not because Jose Altuve does what Jose Altuve does,
1: or a walk-off walk to lose the NLCS. A walk-off walk. Right. Yes,
0: yeah. now we're talking. Right now we're talking. Now we're now we're getting yes. messy.
1: You know. <laughs> I, I was thinking exactly. back. I was and, thinki- thinking back about the Mets, reading through the book. It's like okay, so '86—that's my second World Series. I remember watching Royals winning was the first one in '85, Mets in '86. But I remember more about '86 certainly than '85. I remember I watched the whole game with um, you know Buckner and get by the ball. I remember I ran and woke up my dad. Like yep. you won't believe what happened. Whatever. Then I think about the um, the team that lost to the Braves on uh, the walk off walk. I think about then the Subway Series. I think about 2015. Yep. I think about that play we just talked about. I was a huge Mike and the Mad Dog guy. And I just, I think so much about the next day after the the bat. I can just hear Chris yeah. Russo, you know, like, that's such a bad job. You got to swing the yep. bat. You know, like, a, a bad job, dog. He's got to gotta there, swing the bat dog. got to swing the bat. Yeah, you got to swing to the bat, swing. dog. You're right, dog. You're right,
0: dog. <laughs> got to swing the bat, dog. It, I know. I mean, like, imagine this probably you know, they would still be if they re, if they reunited tomorrow. And they, they should. should be talking about that at that. And yeah. like, and you know what? You wouldn't even mention like, okay, so what happens after that at that though, right? The Mets lose the NLCF. Yep. Yeah. The next season, two thousand seven, they a seven and a half game lead in seventeen games. The year after that, they blow a three game lead for a wild card in like a week. That's never been done before. Blowing two game two playoff leagues, like postseason clinching leagues of three games or more down the stretch. No one's ever done that. And then at the end of that season, after the Mets blow that lead, December of that season, Bernie Madoff, Ponzi scheme gets exposed, and the Mets are basically bankrupt for four seasons. So that's what happened immediately after the Carlos Beltran strikeout. Those next five years happened. So it's, it's not even the strikeout. Like, the strikeout was almost like, You think it's the worst moment. It turns out to be like a foreshadow. Oh, my God. It's like the first chapter of the horror. And then Carlos Beltran comes back as manager, right? And then we hire that guy to manage the team 13 years later. And before he can even manage a single game, he goes down in the biggest cheating scandal since the 1919 Black Sox. I mean, come on, guys. No one can do this. No one can pull this off. This is special.
1: Well, you know, and it's interesting you talk about blowing those leads to the Phillies those couple years. It's like all those years the Braves were great. They always had to deal with that. Then the Braves finally go down, and it's like, okay, we'll just blow the division to the Phillies a couple of times. And it's like, and now the Braves are back. Yep. You know, So it's like maybe not capitalizing in the right moments. Let's talk about the DeGrom thing real quick. The sure. Mets, I was looking my, – like my impression going into this was like, Oh, the Mets are off to a really bad start. None of them played much, but I was thinking the record was three and five, not five and three, because all I ever hear about yeah. is all I ever hear about is Degrom pitched eight innings. You know, he had forty-one pitches. They took him out, and then they immediately blew the lead and lost. It's like a three. It's like, how how can this keep happening? Aren't we to the point of just a, so? This is the most Metsy thing I mean, ever. Look to at me. it this
0: way. If you took away all of Jacob DeGrom's starts from the last three seasons, one of the most dominant three-season runs of any pitcher. Sandy the Koufax division, stuff. Here. Starts, yeah. Sandy, the Mets would have a better record. How is that possible? How <laughs> is that possible?
1: <laughs> Got me. You're the Mets we guy. We literally
0: could remove the three greatest seasons of pitching this century for the Mets and since Tom Seaver himself and the Mets would have been better off. This makes no logical sense. I keep joking that if it wasn't for Jacob DeGrom holding us back, we'd be 5-1 this season. Like, right. Yeah, two, we'd be two running games. running away with the division if it yeah. wasn't for fucking Jacob DeGrom. And, and his it's unbelievable pitching. just the pitching. Messiest, I mean, his pitching right now, he has never been better. He is astonishing he's the it's, best it's, in the world wizard like i can't believe i can't believe he gets better it's not possible he comes up he came but he has a new pitch he has a new pitch
1: he's the number one it's guy like a mess
0: blog that, that's trying to figure out there's a mess blog that's trying to figure out how one of his pitches that was already one of his best pitches seems to be moving sideways along with up and down like it's unreal but again like you describe how could it be any other way? But the Mets, like you know, this is what we did to Tom Seaver too. You know, why why wouldn't it be any other way for Jacob Degrom? We spent, you know, Tom Seaver got nine had nine ten seasons in New York, never had below a five hundred record, which is kind of amazing when you consider the teams he was on. Had two hundred strikeouts every single season, um, and barely made the playoffs twice. Right? I mean this is what we do to the greatest pitchers in baseball is we make everybody pity them.
1: It's like, why do they think they have to manage them so <laughs> tightly? Like, I don't remember the Braves, like taking Greg Maddox out after 55 65 pitches. Like,
0: well, you know, I mean, a- afterward, DeGrom said that he aft out. So okay. I got to let Louie right. off the, off the hook for that. Fair because DeGrom was, was wild. And, you know, but your instincts, is you know
1: that wasn't um, the first we, time though we,
0: you know we, yeah we, we yeah no no no. i mean jesus i mean mickey Callaway basically lost the clubhouse because he kept pulling Degrom right. and other starters when they were rolling and the bullpen would blow it and you were like what are you doing um so so your point is well taken and, and you know i think one of the reasons why mets fans reacted the way they did to that and assumed that the mets had pulled in this because it, it wasn't it, the it first had been time. done so many yeah. times it was just yeah it felt like we were just doing the same shit again um And, look, you know, if you want to – we seem to have a very optimal manager for Metsiness because this guy has been doing some – I know the players love him, but strategy-wise, he's been doing some strange things so far. So, you know, Mets fans are already on edge about, well, you know, we're going to get to the playoffs, and this guy's going to manage us out of it with something crazy, because that would be one way to go. You know, it's like being a Mets fan is sort of trying to see around the corner and guess – what it is that's going to be your undoing, but you never guess. You never see it coming. You never see the wild boar coming, right?
1: Right, like you never would guess that it's, they'd make that the a,
0: world. That was a little Ioanna Cespedes reference. <laughs> that was a little Ioanna Cespedes
1: You reference. never think that you'd make the World Series in 2015 and the Royals, who hadn't won since 85, would be there to meet you. You know, like a team who actually hadn't it's, won since, you, like the Mets won in 86, Royals won in 85, and like, boom, that's the team in 2015 you play. You, would, you It doesn't surprise you to meet the Yankees, right? Like you could almost,
0: especially that Yankees uh, team uh, yeah. in 2000. Yeah, or, you know, there's there's lots of AL, you know, if you're in the Red Sox or, you know, like yeah. the traditional, you know, AL power, you don't expect like, you know, it was very weird because I almost felt like the Mets weren't as likable as the other teams always more likable than the other team and it was like people were rooting for the royals like, what the fuck is going on here why are you rooting for us that was the it's one team who hadn't won. won it was they, they
1: had won. you by one year they hadn't won since 85 you know
0: they got yeah and that's also by the way that's why they that's why they you know they had been the world series the previous year they were a very similar team they were like this scrappy team young team that had gelled right and and and, and they just gelled one year faster and and I knew, like, I knew in game one that we were gonna lose because
1: Right, fourteen innings, five four, right? The
0: team. They well they just had it. They were also just like even before we lost the game, it was like
1: Blew it in the ninth.
0: They just it was it was impossible to get them out. It was impo- they fouled off like a thousand pitches every at bat. They made every single play in the field, they took every extra base. They were just a... I, <clears throat> you could just tell they were a really good baseball team. Now better than us. Now explain
1: this to me. How is it that the Mets won the stadium battle? Because City Field beats the shit out of the New Yankee Stadium.
0: Yeah, it really does. And even Yankee fans will sort of you get them truth serum, they'll, they'll they'll admit that. Oh um, God, yeah. It's, it's the one thing that it, it, it's the one thing that the Wilpons know how to do. They're pretty good at building parks.
1: They can build they can build right. out they, of a they, baseball they, park. They
0: built, yeah, I mean, and they actually built three good parks. The Brooklyn Cyclones Park is really fun. And first, at a field, the spring training facility, which they just rebuilt, they did a really nice job. Yeah, they're real estate guys; they're good at building buildings. And even you know, once they you know, it's look, it is Ebbets Field in spirit, so that's a little odd. But once (laughs) they got enough Mets stuff in it, so that it didn't feel like we were we were on the road at our home games, um, it's a great place to watch. I love City Field. I love going to City Field. It's really fun. They did a great job with that. But you know, there is something messy about having. A great stadium, or the better stadium for the considerably worse team, right? It's like having the be- the, the best booth for the most calamitous team, right? The best broadcast booth, which the Mets and also- Mets broadcast booth is a million times better than the Yankees. Oh my but god! Yeah, they have the, they have the team, right? They, you know, with the Yankees, you can't have anything but sycophants in the booth, right? So, sure. And look at what look at the, the, team, the job they the did with the elbow. To be,
1: Right? Your booth just killed it with the elbow. Yep. You get a national broadcast on a local with a local team, which is what's so great about those guys. The Mets get the unbelievable call yeah, with yeah, the I hip and they just called it straight. They called it beautifully. You know, I'm I
0: can not see Mike UK. Exactly, like you said, the yeah. Conforto, the Conforto reaction was great because it was like a fugue of disgust, right? Each of them expressing their disgust in their own way, right? Like Gary's calling it, and you can hear his disgust. Ron Darling is analyzing it, which is how he expresses disgust. And Keith Hernandez is just in the background moaning, just going, oh, <laughs> oh, which is how Keith expresses disgust. So it was like a perfect reaction from all three of them. I loved that moment. And everybody on the Mets' Twitter was like, we love Gary, Keith, and Ron because they're calling us straight.
1: They're being honest. Uh, the book is called So Many Ways to Lose the. Yeah, the amazing true story of the New York Mets, the best, worst team in sports. It's got the perfect cover, too, with the uh, Mr. Matt with his hands over his eyes and just such sadness. Is there something, you know, I know you've it's been out for a bit and uh, you, you've been doing a bunch of interviews for it. What's the one thing that it seems like everybody picks on, up on? Because I feel like with whenever I have an author in who wrote a book, there's kind of like that one part of the book they're sick of talking about. Like I remember Jeff Perlman had a book about Brett Favre, and the only thing that anyone wanted to talk about was that, first you know meeting between Brett Favre and Aaron Rodgers it's like the 600 page book
0: you know right. but
1: you know is there something in this one that everyone's kind of boiled it down to what's the thing do you think that keeps coming up the most
0: beltron beltron okay beltron yeah 2006 yeah that's the one that comes up in every interview um You know, one of, I mean, there's a favorable, there's a, there's a happy example of that, which is Mrs. Payson, who's the original owner of the meth. And, and, you know, she's one of my favorite figures in the book. She's sort of an overlooked, well-deserving of historical recognition. And people have been asking a lot about her, more than I expected. And that, that's made me very happy because she's a story that I would really like people to know a lot better. But in terms of the, you know, what you're asking about, where it's the, the one kick in the teeth where I'm kind of like, oh, you know, but I'm not like that because, you know, that conversation, the Beltron conversation always comes with the Andy Chavez conversation and I love Andy. I never get tired of talking about Andy. And part of the purpose of doing that chapter in the book was to give Andy his just desserts. And so when people ask about Beltron, even though I have to go through that emotional carnage again, I get to plug Andy.
1: I wonder if there's an if there was an NCA tournament like people do this these brackets on Twitter for like the moment That should have been the moment, but something else happened. Like, was it when Villanova won the national championship in basketball? Like, a few seconds later, that kid from North Carolina made, like, that jump three that we should be playing forever. Yes, incredible three. Right, but that's kind of forgotten because instead you watch the national championship winning three. You know, like, I wonder, like, that would probably be a one seed, and this catch would have to be a one seed in that
0: tournament, I think. You know,
1: there's probably a lot. Well, you know, of these, it's but... like the, it's like the late.
0: There is. I mean, you know, the one that came to mind for me was the was the Kentucky play before the Leitner basket.
1: Sure. Yeah.
0: You know, they were they were Kentucky was winning. Nobody remembers that play. It was a great play, and it was like going to be the greatest play in Kentucky history. Yeah. Until Leitner erased it, and now nobody's ever seen. It. I mean, we we sort of just witnessed one, right? That UCLA basket. UCLA, you know, ties that game or goes up or oh, whatever, yeah. it is, and, and then yeah. and then. Um, and then James. The I mean I yep. I spent the next day watching all the videos of those UCLA fans who
1: were going were nuts.
0: Mid ecstasy. Yeah. Right? Mid ecstasy. And it's like their faces go white. You can see it happen. Um yeah, there's a lot of those in sports. Um and the Mets tend to be on the receiving end.
1: Jeez. What about uh what are your top three good Mets moments? Like what when it when it went right, what what are the three big ones for you that you can never get old like I'm a big I've been a New Orleans Saints fan since I was seven years old in nineteen eighty seven. So like I could talk Tracy Porter with you till the cows come home. You know, of course I'd probably yeah. I'd probably rather complain about twenty eighteen and the no call, but if you can get me to calm down, I will gladly talk Tracy Porter pick six. In the Super Bowl off of Manning with you. What are the Mets moments that are the opposite of the theme here? What are your three favorites?
0: Um, I'm going to try to. Um, you know, my favorites tend to be not necessarily the clinchers, right? My favorites sure. are the Andy Chavez catch.
1: That's a great one. That's an unbelievable catch. Home run. Okay.
0: Yeah, and the Bartolo, Bartolo Cologne home run is one of my all-time favorite moments. Um, and I'm, you know, I, for, for, for some strange reason, this is such a random thing, but I grew up as a Daryl Strawberry. Daryl Strawberry was my first favorite player and will always be my all-time favorite player, despite it all. Um, I, he hit a home run off of the roof of Olympic Stadium uh, in, I think, 87 or 88. Um That was the hardest hit ball I've ever seen. And I still watch the highlight on then just because Tim McCarver's slow dawning realization, what happened to the ball. Like they didn't know it was a ground rule double. He was sort of stopping around the base. And then the umpires, everybody realized what he had done. He hit the ball off the roof of a (laughs) dome stadium. And, you know, first of all, there weren't many dome stadiums in baseball at the time. There was like two or three. And so the idea that you could hit the ball off the roof of the Dome Stadium, it just seemed superhuman. It was superhuman. And so, you know, when you look at Daryl Strawberry's numbers, they look a little pedestrian, especially by today's standards. You know, like hitting 27 home runs or 29 home runs in a season in 1985 or 86, that was a lot. And you like, you'd leave the league with 35. And so it was... You needed these moments of Daryl Strawberry hitting a ball off the roof to sort of get a real appreciation for just how incredible he an athlete and a baseball player he was. So maybe that's sort of why that, that pops into my head.
1: It's interesting because growing up in Buffalo, we didn't have a team, so and it was kind of before the Regional Sports Network. Now, most of the people here are Yankees fans, and I would still probably say the Mets are second, but the third is the Braves because everyone could watch the Braves here. Um, you know, we grew up. Oh, interesting! You know what I mean? Like that. That's why I settled on the Braves because I could watch them every day. They were the only team. Uh,
0: well, yeah, and I could I, I could watch the Braves. They're on TBS.
1: Yep, they're on TBS. I could watch them every day. I could I could live a baseball season like you're supposed. You know, it's before the packages, before the um, before the uh, you know, the regional sports networks like now. I can watch all the Yankee games. I can watch all the Mets games. I can't watch the Braves games, ironically, without a package. You know, um but yeah. I was a huge Dave Justice fan, and you had me thinking about, you know, strawberry being your guy in his big moment. And I know he played on a bunch of different teams, but I was a huge Dave Justice fan and my favorite Dave Justice moment, he was a Yankee when he hit the uh, the ALCS winning home run in two thousand. The old Yankee Stadium uh, on the right. Ma- versus the Mariners. It's a, such a sick home run, in like that building, and I like it even more than the '95 uh, World Series home run. Um, but is there a moment like that where a Met had a great moment, but he wasn't a Met anymore, and and it hurt you a little bit to watch it, but yet you still appreciated it?
0: Daryl Strawberry, Darrell Strawberry and Dwight Gooden. Yeah, both of them winning uh, yeah. winning with the Yankees. And Dwight Gooden, both, both, the, the no hitter. Both of them, Darrell right. Strawberry won two. Daryl Charlie won two World Series with the Yankees. Dwight Goodman threw a no-hitter with the Yankees. So there's a whole chapter, as as you know, there's a chapter in the book about Doc and and Daryl in the Bronx. Um, um, You know, talk about ways for the Mets to lose. Losing your two boyhood baseball icons. Not just to the most hated team in your existence, but that franchise effectively saves their lives. And they, in many ways, go on to have their career highlight moments. Because remember, Darryl Strawberry hit three home runs in the 36-hour period over the Orioles in the first playoff series he had for the Yankees. So he had his most – he hit more home runs in the postseason for the Yankees than for the Mets. Unbelievable. So that's hard, that's hard to swallow. That's hard to swallow. Yeah. That's really hard to swallow. It gave me no – I mean, on a human level, it gave me happiness to see that they were okay and alive. Um, But, yeah, it was hard to swallow.
1: I know you had a a chance to talk to Jeff Prober, who wrote the unbelievable book about the 86 Mets. Is that the best Mets book uh, that isn't by you? Or is – like – what are the three best Mets? Any any person who read, read this book loved it, really enjoyed it. Wants to read a few Mets books. What are some other ones you like? Are there? Yeah,
0: yeah. Well, Jeff, you got to read Jeff's book if you haven't already. Yeah, I it's think, great. I mean, you know that is it's the great. crown. That's the that's, that's the crown jewel of Mets books. The other two um, um, I would recommend um, are Jimmy Breslin's "Can anybody here play this game?" That's the first book written about the Mets. It's about the '62 season. It reads like comedy. Um, it's very Casey Stengel heavy. It's very short. Um, You know, got to read that book. If you want to understand, if you really want to understand the Mets and sort of the DNA of the team as an identity, you know, that's what my book is about. But Breslin's sort of, in many ways, he wrote the script for it. Um, And it was him and and Roger Angel. Um, And um, that's the last book I would suggest you read is The Summer Game, which is a collection of Roger Angel uh, baseball essays that were in the New Yorker, Roger Angel was the first great Mets fan. Um, he discovered and sort of understood what was wonderful and delightful about the Mets before and sort of committed it to paper um, before, in some ways, before even uh, Jimmy Breslin did, because Jimmy Breslin you know, was sort of covering them as a team day to day. Angel is sort of thinking and essaying about them, but those are the two. Those are the other two besides Perlman that I would go get: Jimmy Breslin, can anybody here play this game? And Roger Angel, the Summer Game. Those, those are those are such great summer books too. You will have such a fun time reading them.
1: I really enjoyed the Ron Darling books too, especially um, the Game Seven, 1986 one too. I
0: really liked. His books are great. He's yeah, a really he's, he's really a really good. good writer. Yeah, those are also good recommendations. Yeah, like if you if you're looking for something more modern. And if you want to hear a player's perspective, just read what Ronnie writes. He's great. Um, and, but, you know, if you're trying to go back to the origins of the franchise, those sure. two I gave you are sort of the old school. That, that's, those are the sort of the foundations. But Ronnie's, and Ronnie also wrote a, a book a couple years ago, um, called 108 Stitches. Um, right. That, you know, has a long subtitle, but it's basically him telling stories of all the guys he knew in the game. And it's really fun.
1: The, uh, I should have mentioned it a minute ago, but the nice thing about the strawberry, the thing maybe that cushions the blow a little bit on the strawberry hit, is that series is just so much remembered for Jeffrey Mayer. You know what I mean? And, that, and that Yes, he,
0: yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Uh, yeah. You do kind of forget a little bit about, what is it, four and five, where at four he hits the two home runs.
0: Yeah, yeah. yeah I,
1: that cushions the blow a look, little. in it a little.
0: But in, 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 if I take Solace in one thing, it's that in the sort of lore of baseball fans Daryl Strawberry is a neck he's not a Yankee when people So people good, too. so it's good, Strawberry yeah yeah good in two yeah. so you know it's it was cruel and unusual punishment but it's over
1: alright I gotta tell you one last story and I'll let you go the, uh, the book is called So Many Ways to Lose the amazing true story of the New York Mets the best worst team in sports it's just so fun to kind of read especially if you have a team that you suffered with you know if you suffered with a team yep. y- you can relate to it you know doesn't have to be suffering with the Mets. we suffered with any team. Like, I have the Sabres and the Saints. Uh, you can relate. Um, 1988, uh, I was at the, um, I was at a Sabres game. And I went with my uncle and his friend. And we're driving there. And we're like, oh, it's so cool. We're going to the Sabres game. They're playing the Penguins. So Mario Lemieux is going to be there. So we're all excited to see Mario Lemieux. We're like, man, but it sucks we're going to miss game seven of the Mets and the Dodgers tonight. Mm. It's like a huge mm. buzz about mm. it. And yeah. if you remember back then, obviously 88 we didn't have cell phones. You know, and in the odd, it was kind of antiquated in terms of boards and stuff. So I remember the very first time they flashed the score of the Mets game. It was 6 to nothing and the whole arena yeah. gasped. The the it was unbelievable. Yep. I can't think of another example in my lifetime of being at a different sport, right? Not a home team, um, but that series was so huge and people were so locked in in Buffalo that when they showed that score and it was so early, I don't remember what inning it was, but I remember they put it up. I remember looking at it. Oh, it, my, was, it was a wipeout. Yeah, to my left, it was 6 nothing, And I just remember hearing the whole arena saw it at the same time and just gasped. It was such a unique moment in my life because, like I said, it wasn't in New York City, wasn't in L.A. You know, we're in Buffalo we're at a hockey game, not a baseball yeah. game, you know, but everyone was talking about how we're missing that game. And, man, I'll never forget that moment. Kind of a kind of one of those things. I don't I don't remember why we
0: were so shocked. I don't remember. I mean, it's, it's, it's funny. It sounds like you had a very Metsy experience without being a Mets fan. You, you, it yeah. almost like you got a brief. The whole arena... In window into what it's like.
1: The whole arena gasps. I don't know if maybe we just thought, like, man, it, no matter what, it's going to be a battle to the end. I don't know what it was, but it was wild. I, it's like, I got to tell them that story, but...
0: Uh, yeah, that's, you know, what's like I said, I think you, you got a taste of it, right? Like, that's finding out that the Mets are going to lose this series that way, with that sort of gut punch, nice... For the throat kind of thing yeah that's that's a very messy way to do it
1: well done you can find uh devin on twitter he's at devin gordon x um and the book again it's called so many ways to lose the amazing true story of the new york mess the best worst team in sports um and you can obviously purchase it wherever books are available for purchase then you can read it as an ebook or a one that you hold in your hands whatever uh you do works and like i said you got to see the cover the cover sells the book. It's the perfect cover for sure. Um, anything else, Devin, you thank want to mention or plug or anything I missed? No, you've done such a great job. Thank you so much.
0: I really appreciate it.
1: No, thank you. I had a lot of fun doing this. Um, and it's it's, it's such a, like great, I said, great. you don't have to be a Mets guy. You If you have a team that you have died with before, you know, if you've had the, like me, you, I, you're not a Saints fan, or maybe you are, I doubt it, but you know what I mean when I say, man, the feeling in the pit of my stomach after the Minnesota Miracle, and Stephon Diggs caught that pass. Yeah. Or the feeling in the yeah, pit of my yeah, stomach yeah, yeah, yeah. when I realized they did not call pass interference there. You know. Um, right, right, right.
0: But also, if you've had those moments, feeling you experienced when they pulled off that onside kick, the onside yes. kick must have been one of the great moments of your
1: life. Ambush! I was the only person. Like everyone I loved watched that game with me, and they wore Saints gear. It's unbelievable because they're Bills fans, you know. And but they were there with me that day, and since it was the first play of the half, I was the only one in the room. You know, and it, I'm like, oh my god, mm. onside kick, onside kick! And everyone's coming running from you know outside or the eating or wherever they were I just remember that I was the only one there um you know but yeah the feeling like that or the feeling of Tracy Porter you know picking off uh Peyton Manning and that was the moment I knew we were going to win the Super Bowl you know like but yes yeah. so both of those moments are in the book but um the point to bring them up is not to make it about me but just to say that you don't have to be a Mets fan. No, I know what you mean. It's like,
0: it's, 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 that's, I'm glad you say it because the book is not just for Mets fans. No, it really is written for anybody who has suffered. Like you say, this is a sports book for fans who have suffered, which is pretty much all of us,
1: which is maybe a better way to put it than I did. Devin, thank you so much. I really appreciate this.
0: Thank you so much. You too. I I had a great time. Take it easy. (music)
1: I want to give a thank you to Devin Gordon and Keith Law for being on the podcast today. Don't forget, you can find this episode and all episodes of the Sportscasters on our SoundCloud feed at soundcloud.com slash sports dash casters. You can also find us on Twitter at sports underscore casters. Email me. I'm looking for book club recommendations at sportscasters at gmail.com. Also, the 24-inch podcast lives On the Sportscaster's feed, we recently put up an episode about WrestleMania 18, and we have one about Mr. Perfect, Kurt Henning, and Saturday Night's main event from April of 1990, somewhere around there, uh, that you can listen to as well. Maybe it's a little later than April. Uh, The 24-inch podcast is on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. On Instagram, it's at the number 24 underscore inch underscore podcast. On Twitter, it's at 24 inch podcast and email us at or 24 the number inch podcast at gmail.com and then also we're on facebook the group is called the 24 inch podcast search that you'll find the group it's public uh join Uh, a lot of fun discussions going on there it's really done well we got a contest going if you are 200th follower uh we got some prizes for you there same for 300th even better prizes so we want to build that up. Don't forget, greetings from Allentown. My main man, Peter Winson. He's at GF Allentown Pod. Uh, also, he does GF Allentown Live with Keithy. And he and I have a long-awaited Adams Division podcast that we need to get recorded uh, because I'm ready to do it. It's been my fault that we haven't got it done. So it's time to uh, sort that out. All right. Uh, with all that said today, uh, one last thing, and I'm gonna keep it short, because I'm tired. Uh, because I've been tired for a couple days because I got uh, my second Pfizer shot, uh, the COVID vaccination. And I know um, it's a polarizing topic, but I would never tell anyone what to do. Never. I don't post on social media to wear a mask. You know, I don't post on there to get your shot or to stay home. I don't tell anyone uh, what to do. I don't think that's my place. I'll just say that for me. I just know whether it's right or wrong. That as things open up, you're going to need the vaccine to do it. I just know it's going to happen. Definitely in my state of New York, it's going to happen. If I want to go to a Sabres game. Less likely if I want to go to a Bills game. If I want to go to a wedding. If I want to go to a movie. Whatever. I know. The state already has an app made. And I'm going to need to prove that I have that shot. You know. And also I'm not in the best shape. I've had a lot of health problems. So to me it made sense. You know. And. You got to. All I ask is that you, you you think about it, right? You do your research, think what's best for you, weigh the pros and cons. You know, it's been going in arms since December at this point. Hasn't been a lot of complications. You know, a story here, a story there, which isn't uncommon with vaccines. You know, I think that the messaging has been really poor by people like Dr. Fauci, who I've absolutely had it with. You know, I don't think that uh, the 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 strategy of telling people that go get the vaccine, but you're still going to have to wear a mask and you still need to stay home and you're not going to be able to do it. I don't think that encourages uh, vaccinations, you know, whether it's Biden or Fauci or uh, Biden's girl that's a circle back all the time. I think the messaging has been poor and I think it sent a bad message to shut down the Johnson and Johnson vaccine. Because six women out of seven million got blood clots. I think it just it just adds to the, the paranoia and to the misinformation. And I just think we've done a really bad job encouraging people to get the shot. And I think that that's going to lead to people not getting the shot. And I do believe that, man, these governments, if they're ever going to let us out of this, It's going to be through vaccination and herd immunity and really low rates um, because it just seems like, you know, 15 days to flatten the curve is a lie, you know, and the goalposts keep moving. And I just don't see any other way out of this. So just consider it and then do what's best for you. That's fine with me. Whatever you think is best. For me, it was to get it. You know, I have a young daughter. I'd hate to die of COVID and miss out. And everything that her life is sure to bring uh, In the near future Um, I have a wife Who's still willing to point one leg Towards the Pacific Ocean And one leg towards the Atlantic Let me slide in between I gotta stay alive for that Um, So it's best for me I don't know what's best for you But just think about it It's been a long year Dealing with all this So I hope everyone's doing well. Thanks for listening. Uh, Thanks to Keith Law. I got a lot of stuff coming up. A rock and roll show with Paige Hamilton and the authors of the Nothing But a Good Time book who were awesome when I recorded with them. Uh, Also, Neil Best will be on a show. 24-inch podcast is coming up. So a lot of good stuff uh, in the sportscasters, 24-inch podcast world. Hopefully an Adams Division podcast soon. Stay safe.